I'd like to open my remarks this morning with this letter from the American Cathedral in Paris. So many friends and colleagues have written in the last 18 hours expressing support, promising their prayers, and asking what they could do. I cannot tell you how incredibly important this has been to all of us at the American Cathedral. It is a very fearful time, and we are still bewildered and unsure. Knowing we have prayers coming from around the world, that we have a cloud of witnesses, and that we are so inextricably connected in the body of Christ makes all the difference. What can you do? First of all, I ask your prayers for the victims, those who died and those wounded, for their families, for all those who have helped and are helping, for all who protect us, for the city of Paris and especially our cathedral community, for all those whose anger, fear, and hatred lead them to commit such acts, for hope, for light in the darkness, and for peace. Secondly, I urge you to give some serious thought to next steps. Your expressions of support are strong and genuine, but where do they go? We have all held each other up before, after the Charlie Hebdo shootings, for instance, and after 9-11, and shared a strong sense of unity. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I only mean that our prayers must lead to action. Here in France, I suspect, there will be very, very strong anti-Muslim sentiment. And one thing we must do is stand with our Muslim brothers and sisters and foster conversation and understanding. I think we also need to work harder to care for the flood of refugees fleeing terror in their own countries work for immediate care and for political solutions. You will need to find your own mission in the U.S., but I know that must involve continued dedication and commitment to making justice and making peace and being a light in the darkness. Thank you again, my brothers and sisters. Lucinda Laird, Dean of the American Cathedral in Paris. What can we do? It's an age-old question in the face of horrific evil and suffering. Sometime in the second century before Christ, it drove a Jewish author to pen the book of Daniel while his nation was under brutal oppression and the temple in Jerusalem was desecrated by the Seleucid Empire. Daniel is depicted as a story of faith and hope in the face of darkness. It's cast in the midst of the Babylonian exile from centuries earlier, probably intended by the author as a message of inspiration for his suffering contemporaries. The text forms the antecedent of several other later apocalyptic texts, not least of which is the Christian book of Revelation, which in the first century reflected on Christian hopes, likely in the face of persecution, employing images and metaphors from history and sacred text. 
In today's gospel, we pick up on a similar apocalyptic theme as Mark alludes to the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. Perhaps foretold by Jesus or possibly projected back onto Jesus' teachings by a struggling post-destruction Christian community late in the first century, both Mark's community and the author of Daniel try to make sense of violent realities in their own times to answer the question, what can we do? And unveil in that Greek sense of the word apocalypsis, the true purposes of God, even when all the known world seems to be falling apart. Now, we know that apocalyptic literature is common to many faiths, particularly in times of upheaval and calamity. We also know its dangers. It can be used to justify violence in the name of Yahweh, God, Allah. Apocalyptic thinking can be a useful theological vehicle to project our own propensity for wrath and violence onto the divine. It can also draw out our worst tendency to check the virtues of compassion, empathy, and simple tolerance at the door of our sense of righteousness. And so we find ourselves struggling with a poisoned worldview rooted in apocalyptic sentiment and thinking. This poisoned dream of some kind of resurgent Islamic caliphate fears modernity and postmodernity with all of its complexity and its uncertainty. With propaganda propped up by ignorance and political chaos and frustration, with economic hardship, generations of intertribal and interreligious violence, it clings to this unyielding certainty while projecting violence and fear onto the West and internally. We, in our own way, suffer from fear as well. We fear a disintegrating Middle East. We fear a break on our world dominance. We fear death roaming our streets. We fear losing a peace that has often, quite frankly, been purchased only at the point of a gun. So we are all in danger of succumbing in this hour to fear. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the goal of this evil. You can hear it in the calls to paint all Islam with the broad brush of extremism. You can hear it in the call to willfully blind ourselves with prejudice, to shutter doors and borders to desperate refugees fleeing the metastatic violence in Syria and Iraq and the wider Middle East. You can hear it in the calls to barricade our cities and our public places, to risk grinding our freedoms down further with intrusive vigilance and armament in once largely peaceful, open societies. This past week, before Paris, I was catching up on episodes of the American recasting of that classic dark British political satire, House of Cards. Kevin Spacey brilliantly captures the Machiavellian, psychopathological ambitions of Frank Underwood as he and his almost equally frightening wife, Claire, abandon every scruple to lie, kill, and corrupt their way into the White House. 
In one of the latest episodes, President Underwood descends the steps one morning from the residential wing of the executive mansion, and there he is briefly interrupted in his obsession with power by a clutch of Tibetan Buddhist monks hunched over a table. One of his aides tells him they are part of a cultural exchange, and there they are ignoring him, ignoring him, chanting healing prayers, and painstakingly, almost grain by grain, painting a beautiful sand mandala. Underwood is too busy to give it more than maybe a furtive second glance, and he goes off and proceeds with his wicked machinations to perpetuate his political domination and consolidate power before the next electoral cycle. But here a rift begins to form because Claire becomes distracted from her routine by the monks. And she spends moments looking at this beautiful thing that they are creating. And over the course of the episode, and days stretch into weeks in the storyline, the mandala unfolds in all of its beauty. And the monks never lose their focus. They seem oblivious to being at the nexus of Western economic, political, and military power. They seem oblivious to the political storm swirling around them. So the irony is not meant to be lost on the audience when Frank completely misses the completion of the mandala. And shortly thereafter, the next step of the Tibetan ceremony, in which a monk comes and in a few moments sweeps up the colored sand, obliterating weeks of back-breaking labor. The final scene is Frank blithely asking for a photo of the completed mandala, ignorant of the monks who have gathered now at a river to pour the colored sand into the turbulent waters. Tibetan monks in their sand mandala ceremony embrace the same reality that Jesus points to in today's gospel. As one of his followers is briefly dazzled by the beauty of the temple and the buildings of first century Jerusalem, the center of religious power, the center of their world. But the spiritual lesson is the same all is transient. Even our most beautiful and seemingly timeless houses of power and faith, our deeply human drive is to put our trust in the permanence of sacred space or a political regime or our own power or even a theological construct or a worldview. Our temptation then is when we are confronted by a universe that is forever changing and in flux. Our temptation is to combat that with violence. Those who want a caliphate desperately seek to bring a permanent order out of their chaos, and they are happy to usher in the apocalypse to show that Allah is on their side. And perhaps more terrifying, they are happy to recruit us into that effort. The real danger is that we hand ISIS and fundamentalists of many different stripes the violent apocalypse they crave. 
and destroy the best of our own freedoms and our society and our souls in the process. So what can we do? The true apocalyptic call, that which unveils what is divine, is to learn to live faithfully with impermanence and vulnerability. In the waning days of the year, to choose courage over fear, hope over despair, and the hard roads of true justice over the easy paths of vengeance, to grieve and bury our dead, to offer solidarity to everyone in Paris and all around the world who suffer from violence, to pray for our enemies and those who hate us, to be compassionate with difference and uncertainty, and to recognize that freedom is fragile as all true life is, to embrace that humility where, in our frailty, the best life lived is a life lived in love. For we are surrounded by love, God's love, for us, even in dark moments like this one. In a world where we hear daily of wars and rumors of wars, Jesus tells his followers, God's purpose is still being worked out. God's love is still there for us. And while the world changes and is sometimes swept away like the mandala, God's love remains. And God's dream. God's dream for a world of enduring peace and freedom for all of creation. In this new world, God's dream, Jesus says, is in the midst of being born, even now, in the darkness. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.